So good morning. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the I'm a pastor at Salem Presbyterian Church, and uh, we're in downtown Winston Salem. And uh, I love your church uh, because it's so much like our church, <laughs> and I love our church. And um, really, the the worship is almost identical. The uh, the way you do your liturgy, uh, communion each week, even this we we did this all last year during during COVID. So um, Todd and I are very close friends, and um, and uh, you're in great hands with your leadership here. Um, I know that through him and through just other conversations I've had with other people. This is a wonderful church, and I'm very thankful to be here. Um, we're looking at leadership in the church, so uh, appropriate to say that. Um, I've been listening to this podcast called Who Killed Mars Hill. Has anybody been listening to that podcast? I highly recommend it. Um, it's a little bit scary. I'll talk about it later, but basically it's about uh, toxic leadership in the American church, and um, a lot of us have been affected uh, by leadership that is toxic. Um, I'll talk about the way Peter would define that uh, in this passage, but that's the word that you hear a lot these days, uh, toxic leadership, and it's affected a lot of us, and uh, I think it's led to the deconstruction of, of a lot of young people's faith. You know, we ask, why, is, why are these young people deconverting? And I think a lot of it is just they were in these churches where the leadership was, uh, was, was toxic. Um, and the reason that it is is because it's right out of the, the playbook of the empire. I talk a lot about the empire and the kingdom and how Jesus came to this world to bring a revolution, the kingdom revolution. One way to think about it is a, a, um, a pyramid versus an ice cream cone. And in, in the empire... Um, we have pyramids everywhere, and so in a pyramid, uh, you're trying to get to the top of the pyramid, and you're trying to get as many people under you as possible, and you're trying to go upward to have a lot of people serve you and notice you and applaud you. That's the empire. In the kingdom, Christ flips that upside down and said, you have heard it said among the Gentiles that their great ones lorded over them, but not among you. That whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and the greatest of all must be the slave of all. Because even the Son of Man did not come here to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so in the kingdom, you're trying to go down. It's downward mobility. You're trying to get to the bottom. You're trying to disappear and serve as many people above you as possible. And that is sadly extremely rare in the church. It's... uh, it's called shameful gain and domineering over those in your charge in verse 2 and 3. That's what Peter calls it, shameful gain. Verse 2, domineering over those in your charge, verse 3. That's the empire. The kingdom is in verse 5 where Peter says both to the leaders and to those who are subject to the leaders, clothe yourselves, all of you, both groups, with humility Toward one another, and we're going to talk about how miraculous uh, that idea of humility was to Peter's audience. So, first, the empire, empire leadership, dominance, acquisition, kingdom leadership, humility, oversight, shepherding. I want to look at those two things. First of all, the empire uh, domineering over those in your charge. It's what Peter. Uh, it's what Jesus said to Peter. Uh, 25 years earlier, when Peter said, can I sit at your right hand and James at your left hand? 
And Jesus said, uh, it is among the Gentiles, the non-believers, that they lord it over each other. Their rulers lord it over them. And the word lord it over, L-O-R-D, uh, making the word lord into a verb, lording it over them, that is what domineering literally means in the Greek, to lord it over them. So think about the way we assert one's will over another in an arrogant way. That's the way it's defined in the dictionary. Uh, domineering means to assert my will over you in an arrogant way. That's domineering. The book of James. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he wants nothing to do with leadership that is domineering. He says, um, he calls these leaders uh, people who are filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit and who have bitter jealousy because they're fiercely competitive. And there's so many pastors that, whose, whose hearts are fiercely competitive, who are, who are selfishly ambitious, who are, who are jealous, bitterly jealous. And Peter says that domineering has no place in the church. You'd expect that out there, but not in here. It's got to be different in here. We can't play by the rules of the empire. We can't bring corporate leaders, uh, models of leadership into the church. Peter calls this shameful gain in verse 2 because you're trying. It does have to do with money. So he is saying a leader should not be about making a lot of money. So if a leader has a, I don't know the salary, but let's just say several houses worth a million dollars each, making over a million dollars. There's something about that that doesn't quite fit uh, with the kingdom of God. And and there are a lot of leaders of very large churches in this country making that kind of salary. Peter says, no, that's shameful gain. Another way to think about shameful gain is just maximizing your fan base or your platform, as they say. I want to maximize my platform. How many followers do I have? How many, how many people are listening to me? How can I build up my platform? So you, you end up treating people like they're numbers, like they're abstractions. Like they're pawns in your game of competing with the pastor down the street. And the reason I know these things is because it's in me. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about me. And I know it's in Todd, too, because we talk about it. You have to repent of these things. You have to repent all the time. Elders must be the chief repenters, the ones who say, this is not the way I should live. This is, this is the empire. I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking like the empire. I'm not thinking like the kingdom. So Mars Hill, Mars Hill Church, you may not have ever heard of Mars Hill Church because it pretty much died uh, in 2014. But in 2011, it was the most cutting-edge megachurch in America. There were 15,000 young people in Seattle, of all places, the most secular city in this country, 15,000 people in Seattle, a lot of them young, a lot of them hip and cool, a lot of them in bands and artists. And it was pastored by this man named Mark Driscoll, who was very bold, who spoke all over the country. In many ways, he was brilliant, a genius. He knew, how to, he knew how to communicate extremely well. Uh, and he influenced hundreds of young church planners, probably more than even the 15,000 people at the church, and even more than the thousands of people who listened, maybe hundreds of thousands who listened to him on podcasts. I think his, his biggest impact was on the hundreds of leaders in Acts 29. He started this network called Acts 29. Hundreds of young church planters uh, were influenced by him. But 
In October 2014, after multiple allegations of abuse and misconduct, uh, he was let go, and almost immediately the church vanished, which shows you right there that's bad leadership. Um, but if you listen to this podcast, you hear his arrogance. I mean, he just screams at people. He belittles people. He mocks people. And somehow when he's doing these things, you hear the congregation laughing and enjoying this. Um, you know, this is controversial to say this, but there was one person who's interviewed, and she said that he, he built, he, he allowed evangelicals to get into a mindset that would allow for someone like Donald Trump to come and bully people and mock people. Um, and the evangelical support of Donald Trump, this person said, was somewhat influenced by Mark Driscoll. Anyway, that's a political comment, but, um, but Mark Driscoll said that, that he had nothing to learn from a pastor whose church was under 10,000. Nothing to learn. Um, he built his reputation by kind of latching on to Tim Keller and John Piper, and then he repudiated them after he grew bigger than them. Um, he said, uh, if you plant a church near me, I will tear it down brick by brick to one, one church planter. He was a bully. Uh, he was a narcissist. He said, I don't think he realized how important I am to one of his staff members. Um, he was abusive. He told wives what they had to do to please their husbands, and it's pretty gross. And he would say this in, in, in sermons all the time. Um, but my point in talking about Mark Driscoll is, is um, not just to criticize Mark Driscoll, but to say that uh, this is happening in megachurches all over the country. Uh, there's something wrong with Americans that we want these kind of leaders. Um, we want empire leadership. We are even drawn to people who are narcissistic. Uh, we want somehow something that's big and dominant. That's our desire. Uh, we, we want to be part of this huge movement that changes the world, which oftentimes means just building up the ego of the, the head pastor. And uh, like I said, you know, if this goes unchecked in the heart of any pastor, uh, they're going to move in this direction. Because if you're a pastor, you're, you're working with these <clears throat> these mysteries that are so powerful like the bible like the lord's supper like music like community you're you're working with things that are so powerful that you you yourself could be not very talented at all and yet still build a huge following because you're you're working with the mysteries of god and uh and i see this in myself uh, in an indirect way um you know i say i don't want to be like that i don't want to be like that at all i don't want to be famous i don't want to be big um, I don't want my name to be great. I don't want to make a name for myself, as I say at the Tower of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. I say I don't want to be like that, but then why am I jealous? Why am I bitter when I see someone move into our city, start a church, and it just explodes? And that's happened. It's happened recently. You know, I don't want to be like that person, but then I'm upset with that person for being so big. Why would I be upset at all if I didn't care about that? There was a guy I had uh, lunch with. This guy's great. His name's Mike Connors. He runs this thing called Insight in Greensboro for kids that are falling into addiction, and they come, and it's a 12-step program, and it's fantastic, Mike Connors. He said he, uh, he emailed 100 pastors about what he was doing, and three responded. And I was one of the three, so I'm boasting now. But I was one of the three just because uh, we have a child who's going through some, something like that, and so I was drawn to this, what this guy's doing. So I met with him at the Loop in Kernersville, and he said, uh, yeah, it was you and this other guy 
um, of a, a, a Presbyterian church, a mainline PCUSA Presbyterian church. And there was this guy from Elevation Church. And I was so disappointed because I want to dislike Elevation so much uh, because there's something about that church and that pastor that I've always disliked, just always disliked Stephen Furtick. And so I was so upset that this guy was saying that Elevation was actually great at taking care of people in recovery and addiction. And that's what I'm talking about. It's that instinct in me that is uh, bitterly jealous, that's selfishly ambitious. I mean, obviously, Elevation is doing great things. And, you know, the question is, uh, I think in some ways we're all leaders. There's people who are influenced by us um, in whatever way. We're, we're leaders. And the question is, do you see this in yourself? Do you see the domineering? Do you see the shameful gain? What about the people that lead you? You know, what about the leaders in this church? I mean, if you see that in them, please point it out. I would love for a congregant to come up to me and say, you know, what you, and they've said this to me. They've, they've said, what you did right there, uh, that's, that's not like you. That looked like the empire, what you did right there. Those words you said to that person, what you said in that sermon. And I know that the, uh, the elders and the deacons of this church would love for you. I'm going to speak on their behalf and say, I know they would love for you to come up to them and say to them, if you ever, if you ever see empire leadership in them, point that out. Very important for the health of the church. Because nobody crossed Mark Driscoll for the longest time. Uh, listen to what Ezekiel says about the empire leadership in Israel that snuck into Israel Back in Ezekiel's day, uh, this is Ezekiel 34, 2 through 6. And uh, this is God speaking through Ezekiel to Israel. And, and God, Yahweh says, how I hate the shepherds of Israel who care only for themselves. See, that was going on back then. Uh, you consume the milk and you wear the wool and you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. In other words, they're benefiting on the backs of their sheep that they're supposed to be protecting. You wear their wool, you consume their milk, you slaughter their fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. He goes on to say, you have not encouraged the weary, you have not tended the sick, you have not bandaged the hurt, you have not recovered the straggler or searched for the lost, but you have driven them with ruthless severity. And if that's what God expects of Old Testament leadership, how much more now that Christ has come? And that leads to the second point, which is uh, kingdom leadership. And you see that you see that in Ezekiel's words, a kingdom leader would encourage the weary. Do we encourage the weary? A kingdom leader would tend to the sick. You know, do we ever visit those of us who are leaders? Do we ever visit people in their homes in the hospital who are sick? They bandage up the hurt. They recover the straggler. They search for the lost. That's what. God is so clear. This is what my leaders are supposed to be like, Old and New Testament. So, number two, the kingdom. We looked at the empire leadership. Now we're moving to the kingdom leadership. And like I said, 25 years before Peter wrote this, he made this stupid move where he came to Jesus and said, I want to be number one, and I want James to be number two. We want to be the leaders of your movement. You're doing great things. We think we can help you out. And Jesus said, that's not how I lead, Peter. That's not, what, that's not the question you should be asking. The question you should be asking is, how do I get down below people and lift them up? How do I disadvantage myself to advantage others? You know, I want you to descend, Peter. I want you to get under people 
And I want you to lift them up because God opposes the proud, verse 5. But he gives grace to the humble. So rather than control, rather than being an influencer, serve, disappear. That's a passage from the Old Testament, by the way. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This has been a theme throughout the whole Bible. This is not just in the New Testament. But after Peter was rebuked by Jesus, uh, notice how he changes here. He doesn't call himself your eminence. He doesn't call himself the head of the church. He doesn't use some exalted title like the Pope or something like that. He says, uh, I am a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. That's all I am. I'm a fellow. I'm no higher than any of you. I'm one, we're all level. And I love this about the Presbyterian form of government. Is in the Presbyterian form of government, all, low, all elders are the same. There's no one above that. There's no hierarchy. We're all the same. All elders are the same. Elected, elected by the congregation to be leaders in the local church, and then also all across Presbyterians and, and the whole denomination. Elders are the same. A fellow elder. And so if, you know, if, if people wanted to stand at attention when Peter came in the room, he would have said, sit down because I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. I do not need you to put me on a pedestal like that. So elders are called to this upside-down kingdom, this countercultural uh, humility to flip the pyramid schemes of the empire over and to be examples of the flock in verse 3. We, we have got to be examples of humility to the flock. If leaders don't have humility, the flock's not going to have humility because we're examples. The flock looks to leaders. And I would say, in many ways, uh, the essence of the whole Jesus revolution um, was this little Greek word called typanos. Uh, and if you look back at the way typanos is used in Greek literature, um, it, is, it is not used in a way that is commendable. It's, it's used as an insult. The word typanos is used as a slur. Uh, we, we use the word, uh, the translation we use is humility. That's the word Peter uses, clothe yourselves with humility. But to the Greeks, it meant insignificant, it meant weak, it meant poor, it meant lowly, it meant servile. I listened to a podcast on ancient Sparta yesterday, and the Spartans despised typanos, despised humility. In the empire, it's like saying you're a doormat, you're a loser, you're trash, you're a nobody. And Jesus came along and he said, that's my word. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redefine your language and I'm going to choose this word and I'm going to say, that is my cardinal virtue, humility. I mean, I got converted by reading Mere Christianity and in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, the great sin, the sin above all sins is pride, arrogance, vainglory, and the greatest humility, the greatest virtue in the Christian life is humility is typanos. And this is interesting. If you meet people who are secular, maybe some of you are not, not religious, but if you meet people who are secular, my parents are, my brother is, secular humanists, um, you know, a lot of times they value humility. I think our whole culture kind of still does value. At least we know we're supposed to value humility. We know that boasting is not really a good thing. And if you meet somebody who, if you have a friend who's a secular humanist who's very humble, you should say to them, you know, you're really following Jesus 
very nicely because you are you have you have bought into his central ethic of humility and so you know you're part of the jesus revolution whether you know that or not or like that or not uh you you have joined him in his revolution where he has turned the empires of the world upside down because in ancient babylon assyria persia greece rome whatever empire you want to name typonus is not a virtue jesus made it a virtue he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, leaders and led, with humility. With humility. And the word clothe uh, is the word for the apron of a slave. The word clothe refers to what Jesus wore when he washed his disciples' feet. And that was really one of his great acts of humility, was when he washed the feet of his disciples. The most lowly servant, and only the most lowly servant, would ever wash anyone's feet and that's what jesus did right before he died and he said this is my kind of leadership is the apron of a slave and so again the questions we've got to ask ourselves is do pastors lead this way do i lead this way do mothers lead this way i mean mothers have a huge influence over the the uh the ethos of a household and so if you're a mother you have to ask yourself as a leader Am I leading this way? A businesswoman, a businessman, do you as a Christian shepherd people? You know, an older sibling, I mean, I had an older brother, I looked up to him. If you're an older sibling, do you demonstrate humility in the way that you lead your younger sibling? And then uh, I think husbands more than anything. I mean, it's kind of controversial to say this, but I think husbands are called to lead the family but only to lead in a way where they're wearing the apron of a slave. So I don't think any wife would ever object to a husband who is leading the way that Jesus is leading here. You know, not that a husband is smarter or wiser or more competent. A lot of wives are smarter than their husbands. <laughs> There's one right over there. A lot of wives are more competent. They'd be bet, they'd be, they can make a lot more money than their husbands. And yet, somehow... God says, I want husbands to die themselves, to lay down their lives for their wives, to serve them, to listen to them, to learn from them, to anticipate their needs, and in doing so, to lead the family, to spiritually lead the family. And that's how Jesus calls all of his leaders to lead. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, verse 2, exercising oversight. A good shepherd oversees the flock. So those of you who are elders, you're supposed to be overseeing the flock. You, you need to know when, when one of the sheep is wandering away. We need to know the names of the people in our congregation who are in danger, who are walking away from the faith, walking away from the church. We need to strain our eyes to see these people. That's what oversight means. A good shepherd does not drive the sheep from behind with a whip and, you know, and make them lead the way. A good shepherd goes in front of the sheep calls them by name. John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He walked in front of the sheep. And a good shepherd is first in line when the, when the lion comes, when the wolf comes, when the bear comes to attack the sheep. The, the good shepherd is right there in front. And that's why Peter says that they're a witness to the sufferings of Christ because a good leader takes the hit. A good leader sacrifices their well-being. In, in the case of Jesus, he sacrificed his life. He walked in front of his church 
He took the hit from Satan. He, he paid the price for his church's sins. That's why he said, I am the good shepherd. I am the one who leads the shepherds. I love it in Ezekiel when God calls out the shepherds and said, that's not the way I want them to lead. What he says next is really stunning. Yahweh himself says in Ezekiel 34, Behold, I've had enough of these human shepherds. I, I myself will come. And I will search for my sheep. I mean, think about Jesus when this is God saying, I will search for my sheep and I will seek them out and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. You know, if you know anyone that's in deep pain and spiritual darkness is wandering away, Jesus will leave the 99 to come and search for that one. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And that's what we celebrate at this table. Uh, We celebrate a shepherd who would give his body and his blood to buy, to ransom his sheep. You know, I, I, I did not come here to, to be served, he said, but to serve and to give myself as a ransom for many. 